0: Hey Cabot Cove Gazette fans, this is TJ coming to you with a little favor to ask of you. So my dear colleague and co-host Bridget is currently undertaking a survey on both Murder, She Wrote and Angela Lansbury fandom for a book she is currently writing. So if you are as in love with either Murder, She or Angela Lansbury as we are, we, she and I would love it if you could take about 30 minutes, it's uh, 30 questions on the questionnaire, to speak a little bit about your own fandom, what drew you to Murder, She Wrote, and so forth. And you can find the link for it on our Cabot Cove Gazette social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks very much in advance.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette. I'm Bridget Keyes.
0: And I'm TJ West.
1: And today we're talking about Murder to a Jazz Beat, which is our series' first episode set in New Orleans. Teach, do you want to give the brief summary?
0: I sure will. So as you alluded to, Jessica goes to New Orleans, and there she attends a jazz performance where the lead, uh, he's a clarinetist, right? I think. yeah it's
1: a clarinet yeah
0: yeah uh is poisoned via the clarinet and so the mystery is who did it obviously and it's on television so there's this whole debacle where the news media is having a field day with this death moment and then ultimately turns out though his friend and assistant killed him in order to keep him from to keep the man himself from killing his wife so it's a bit of a you know strange conclusion but it works out in the end So
1: two things that we should talk about before we really dive in. Um, First is that this is obviously the first significant Black cast episode of the series. Um, We've had a few Black characters and characters of color so far, but uh, by and large, this one is entirely, well, not entirely, um, most of the central characters are BIPOC, and that feels really important to some of the issues of diversity that you and I have talked about in the past. The, uh, the second thing we need to talk about before we get any further is what, what the name of the city is, because I say New Orleans, which is really going to piss off a lot of people listening to this. How do you say it? Generally speaking, I say New Orleans. New Orleans. Yeah. New Orleans. Yeah. And uh, neither I mean, of really us like... say Nolens, so that's Nolins, just not going right. to happen. Yeah,
0: Right. Well, I mean, neither of us are locals. so. <laughs>
1: and actually, it doesn't matter because one of my beefs with the episode is that it looks nothing like New Orleans. Um, there's none of the beautiful flavor and color and texture of the city in this episode,
0: which is overwhelmingly beige. Right. It is a particular, as you say, I think the aesthetics of the episode are very bland, considering that, like, you know, New Orleans is a city well-known for its color and its festivity, and it's kind yes. of like, you know, joie de vivre, I, it just didn't get... I, I agree with you. Well, I think I liked the episode more than you did. I did feel that it was lacking any kind of specificity that would say, hey, this is New Orleans. It's yes. kind of like Seattle, where it's just like, okay, this is just a port city. Like, there's not a lot to but suggest sh- this is Do you know Seattle.
1: what? They shot that one in Seattle. Did you know that? I didn't I did know that know at that. the time. Um, this is... It's, you know, so... Um, we ha- we have a lot of soundstage shooting in this episode, and mm-hmm. in locations that are supposed to be a barn being converted to an audio recording studio, and then we're at some cafe that looks weirdly like a medieval beer hall, um, but oh, both right. are overwhelmingly you know brown and wood. Even Jessica's wearing creams and browns in this episode, um, and topes. It's just, it's so bland and boring. And New Orleans you think of as um, full of music and life and vibrant. And we'll get a lot more of that in an upcoming episode set in New Orleans where there's, we actually see Carnival, Jessica arrives during Carnival, Uh, and we have people in Masquerade. Um, So maybe that's
0: helping to, if you'll forgive the expression, color your perspective about this episode. Yeah. Is that... that, um... If it I could have been it.
1: anywhere, I guess is my thing. It's, it doesn't feel yeah. like a New Orleans story. Um, the best parts of it, though, we you know we open with a shot of the river and a riverboat, and we hear the brass band. Um, so mm-hmm. that tries to give us the sense of flavor. But for me, the best episode that tried to give some sense of place um, is our guest actor Garrett Morris, one of the original cast members on Saturday Night Live, who plays a Mm. cab driver whose name is Lafayette Duquesne, which is like a great New Orleans name. Uh Uh, And he appears several times to drive Jessica places and promises he knows everything about the city. And I think he gives us some of that fun sense of place.
0: Yes, I agree. He's probably the best part about the whole episode. I think so too.
1: And I just have a lot of respect for Garrett Morris. I've done a lot of research into 1980s and 70s SNL, and I think he got a bum rap on SNL. And so it's good to see him um, getting to do some other characters.
0: Yeah, and he's just, he has an irreverent approach (laughs) to the role that I think injects a lot of joy into it really and I mean yeah. they clearly like what I love is that Jessica just sort of takes it in, in stride and that's I love that like Jessica is utterly unflappable like she's just <laughs> like immerses herself you know with this wacky wacky cab driver and it just takes it all as if you know it's just a de- another day in the life of JB Fletcher yeah
1: I, well and he's kind of unflappable too she's like listen I know you want to give me a history of the city but I need to be somewhere in five minutes and he's like well why didn't you tell me and he like yanks the car around and He's like, I know everything about the city. I can take you anywhere you want to go and get you places. And so mm-hmm. it's a really cute relationship established between the two of them, I think.
0: Yeah. And it's I mean, it's a remarkably light moment considering how rather bleak. It's a really dark so, murder. Yeah. So much of the rest of the episode is like, yeah. you know, the uh, Glenn Turman's like Ben Coleman is a huge asshole. Like he, he's the murder victim. He is like this huge tyrant and I call asshole. Who is plotting to murder his wife with poison from South America, which is really fucked up.
1: Yeah. So, Glenn Turman, um, you know him better as Colonel Taylor from a different world,
0: or at least I do, because I grew up with Colonel Taylor. Uh, he's also been killed in like everything he ever appears in he (laughs) dies in Fargo he dies in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom like I swear to god he dies in everything (laughs) he's in
1: but he's um there's he's the character he plays is a little bit gregarious and interesting but then as the episode goes on after his death and we start excavating who he was um, we're told that he was actually just this really dreadful awful person he's He's, uh, as TJ said, the band was in his band was in South America, and he figured out that he could smuggle back this rare poison, that would probably be untraceable and kill his wife, so he could dump her when his, when he got his big shot in Las Vegas, and he didn't have to have this weight of a wife dragging him down. He could find some new side piece. I mean, it's really dreadful. He fired all of his bandmates.
0: Yep. I mean, it's also true that you know his wife had covered up for a crime earlier in his life and so like you know that was also yeah explain
1: that, in that in backstory mind. because honestly i think i wasn't i i
0: don't i didn't care enough to follow it <laughs> okay so uh, apparently like what had happened is that ben and his friend eddie had i think it was a robbery had, that had gone wrong and ended up with someone dying but his wife who, uh, who would eventually become his wife lied she for the provided their alibi. So, to give the alibi, And she refused to back down. Like she remained steadfastly loyal to him throughout his life, despite the fact that he gave her no actual reasons to do so, which is admittedly, I think one of the episode's less convincing conceits, because yes. I'm just not sure that this woman
1: cares about is, him.
0: Is, as, you know, because she's very much set up as, as, like as a martyr, like as a noble mm-hmm. figure, but it's like, I refuse to see how like covering up, an act of well what we would probably call manslaughter is a particularly like laudable stance to take. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and then we should talk about Eddie too. So Eddie has known um uh what's his name? Ben for I just want to call him yeah. Colonel Taylor for all these years and uh and was involved in this scheme with him. Um, and uh, Eddie, I, we're never like explicitly told what his story is, but he the actor plays him as if he has some sort of developmental disability. Yes. And everyone sort of takes care of him in that way. Um, and we're told, though, that like one, the Ben's one redeeming quality is like he treats everyone else in his life like shit. But uh, we're told he's always been good to Eddie. Yeah. But Eddie knows that Ben plans to kill his wife. And so Eddie ultimately takes the poison and uses it on Ben first to protect the wife, which is, I mean, all murders considered kind of sweet, I guess. Yes.
0: And I mean, so, you know, that's one of the things that I found at least. I mean, because I know that we had very different responses to the episode, like in the pregame. I just think
1: it's boring. That's all. Yeah.
0: So I enjoyed it because largely because I think of the conclusion that Eddie did this Mm. act to save, you know, The woman, he was, I mean, the the subtext is that he is in love with her. And that's why he was willing to protect her. And then she, in return, is willing to protect him. So in the final. She
1: protects him. She helps hide evidence and misdirect the police. And it seems like she has a very sort of motherly or sisterly,
0: um, deep,
1: deep affection for him as well. Right.
0: And that she at least is willing to, you know, to once again put her own credibility on the line for someone who committed an act of, you know, taking another life.
1: Yeah, I will say, teach. you know, I'm knocking on the episode, but I've always really liked the ending. Um, every time I see it, I think I'm, I'm always struck at the idea that there was this guy who was sort of awful to both of them. Well, at least awful to her. Uh, and that they both loved him. Mm-hmm. But they loved each other enough to realize that he's bad for them yeah. you know and the way that they sort of protected each other and they're they're like physically holding each other at the end mm-hmm. when Jessica confronts them I mean their arms are around each other and it's not like as if they've schemed you know sexually right. to kill him so they can be together it's 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 affectionate love mm-hmm. it's not like sexual right. um and it's, it's very heartwarming in a way but like I'm never murder is never good right but you kind of understand that Eddie was Eddie felt really stuck, like this person he cared about was about to do this horrible thing to this other person he cared about, you know?
0: Yeah, and I mean, as with the episode Lovers and Other Killers, like, I, I, I kind of really love the episodes of Murder, She Wrote that don't give us the Jessica laugh at the end, that don't give us the sort of, as we've talked about before, that re- that restoration of good order and that sense that mm. the future will be optimistic. I actually think the show is at its best whenever it does the opposite or when it gives us <laughs> some more reason to be a little less sanguine about the future that we have these moments where we don't have the murderers like carted off or, or admitting, you know, at a, at a melodramatic moment of what they've done, but instead have to sort of confront the ugliness of human reality. Yeah. Like I think those are the moments when Murder, she really shines and it's mm-hmm. usually in the conclusions. I mean, I'm sure I'm probably alone in that because I'm sure a lot of people like the Jessica laugh, which I do too, but I just think that these moments show Just how complex the show can be and how much it's gesturing toward the complexity of human emotions and, you know, the human condition. And and
1: the realities of grief that I think, you know, we've talked about this in previous episodes, that the nature of a 45 minute self-contained episode means that no one is ever really given time and space to grieve. Right. And there's something really nice about these episodes where Jessica is just like, oh... Yes, yes, yes. That it's like, okay, we're realizing, we're recognizing, we're acknowledging like this horrible thing has been done rather than just like swiftly moving on to like the world is great again. Right,
0: exactly. And I think that there's a sense too that like Jessica understands why they've done what they've done. Like she may not approve of it, but it's another of those incidents where she's like, well, yeah, I guess it is pretty shitty that he tried, that he was going to murder you. (laughs) Like, you know.
1: yeah. I think it speaks to uh, her writerly ability mm-hmm. that she understands that depth of character, but just also her empathy that she she gets people and she understands their motivations and their desires um, in a really nuanced mm-hmm. way. That she doesn't agree with their actions, but she's able to understand why they've chosen the, the the actions that they have.
0: Right. And I mean, I think that a lot of that comes... She's perfect. She is perfect. I, I, <laughs> there's just... There are some television characters that are just the epitome of perfection like they're the have <laughs> sort of like platonic ideal of like, of a person and i i i, I do truly think that jb fletcher is one of those people and i think that as we you know as people who've listened to this pod know i i gush about lansbury's performance but i do think that that's part of what we're picking up on because what she manages to do in those moments is you read on her face i think of it as like sort of a blasted look like she's just been blasted by the tragedy of this like yeah. like this is not one of those morally simple episodes where someone's done something shitty because you know they're having an affair on their spouse or they wanted the money or whatever this is a pair of two people who were confronted with the ugly reality of a person who was a truly awful vile human who they loved anyway i mean I know that seems implausible to some people, but that's the way human emotions work. Like sometimes you love a person, even though they're a monster. And she recognizes the sort of impulse, impossible position they were put on and her face registers just, you know, not only her empathy, but her recognition of just how, you know, this kind of catch 22 in which they were both ensnared.
1: So in an, in a way, though, um, it's it's really just another of the same themes, though, that we've been seeing repeatedly that it's a shitty rich guy or a yes. shitty guy on the cusp of richness um, who's killed because he sees the people in his life as disposable to continue accruing his wealth, right? I mean, right. Is, we're at this point now where 15 episodes in, it's pretty much the same murder over and over. Yes. Last, You know, the last week with um, Broadway Malady was a little bit different, but yeah, mostly this is the story here, and then the, the, the details just get filled in differently.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Can we talk about some of the fun parts of this episode, y- yes, we though? Certainly can. Maybe, since we've talked about the murder, can we talk about, like, um, like you mentioned uh, at the beginning that um, videotape and technology become important again, which mm-hmm, is a theme we've mm-hmm. seen a couple of times now? That um, Ben's death happened on camera as they were taping a concert. And so there's a lot of, like, going to the station and reviewing the videotapes and. As TJ said, the station manager wants to put the tape of his death on the air because he thinks it'll draw a lot of viewers. Everyone else thinks that's sort of repugnant, um, which is...
0: Which it is. Even today, I'm just like, what the fuck? I mean, jeez.
1: But, you know, we see deaths all the time on social media. Right. I just saw one yesterday, and I I don't want to. I don't want to encounter that. So it's kind of nice to, like, have this moment where um, the tape itself can be controlled Mm -hmm. and contained... And, like, we can have that debate about it rather than some piece of digital video that can be copied ad infinitum and then disseminated before anyone can say anything. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that uh, the fun of that is that Jessica is at the station and she's, like, watching the videotapes and reviewing the videotapes. And she also sees the tape of, like, another another show happening and a commercial. And so we have this, like, sort of frenzied scene where people are talking and the TV's blaring and she's watching it. Um, And it's a denture commercial.
0: Oh, I didn't notice that. it's
1: someone talking about getting, you know, if you eat blueberry pie and it stains your dentures and how to get your dentures clean. And that's the aha moment where she figures out that, if he was poisoned by his clarinet reed, it should have been stained with coffee because he was drinking coffee. Mm-hmm. But I think there's just something really fun about that, that that aha moment happens with TV. Um, and that it's it's again, this idea of like the digital technology and the video era are mm-hmm. deeply important to the crime and the solution of the crime.
0: Right. It's one of those moments like where I think that to use academic par- parlance from like a historicist <laughs> reading really does kind of help help you understand like what the show is doing like wh- how f- how thoroughly it is partaking of you know, 1980s culture, whether that's, you know, it's critique of Reaganism, whether it's the way it's engaging with the, you know, the new technologies of videotape and the way that that's impacting television, including news. Like, that's why I do truly think that, like, you know, the kind of historicist reading that we're doing, um, certainly you're doing for the book that you have coming out, are just so vital to really sort of grasping just how rich and how, you know, textured this show is in its engagement with its time.
1: I think uh, yes. I don't know what else to add to that because I think you said it all really nicely. <laughs>
0: well, that's what I'm here for.
1: <laughs> um, let me throw another interesting moment at you. So and, um, Jessica, we said it's perfect. She's not actually perfect because in this episode, she arrives in New Orleans on the wrong day.
0: Oh, that's She's true. She's her calendar.
1: A... But that gives her time to go see this concert, um, which is how she happened to be there during the murder. And um, there's this lovely moment. Did you notice when the the band is playing and she's listening to the band, and we have a camera tilt down her body to her leg, so we can see her foot tapping in time. Oh, I the didn't beat. notice that. Um, we never ever have that kind of bodily fetish of Angela Lansbury in this series. That's really rare, and it was just really fun because we see her in this beautiful brown peep toe shoe. By the way,
0: Jessica like, Fletcher it's shoe fetishist.
1: Jv Fletcher shoe fetishist. <laughs> I'm never going to live that down, am I? Nope.
0: (laughs) If we make no other contribution to Murder, She Wrote Studies, that will be it.
1: (laughs) Murder, She Wrote Studies, (laughs) based on Angela Lansbury's shoe wardrobe. Oh, it's really dreadful because I do actually note her shoes in all of my notes for each episode. (laughs) Anyway, they're lovely brown peep toes. She's tapping along to the music, and it shows us that, you know, we've talked about this before, that her travels as an author give her a freedom to encounter different cultures and experiences Mm -hmm. that she hasn't had in Cabot Cove. And here we see her really embracing like the jazz scene in New Orleans.
0: Yeah, no, I like that. And I I do especially like the idea that in some ways, you know, to sort of broaden the, uh, the scope for a minute, like, you know, that JB through her a lot of, you know, sort of, how do I want to put this in a less insensitive way that as uh, To use your favorite expression, the, the Joe Popcorns of, you know, the network era. Oh, explain Joe Popcorn, though, because people might not know that phrase. Okay, well, I, I was hoping we it's could It's not my phrase. I know, but you, you like to use it. So uh, Joe Popcorn is kind of like Joe the Plumber the everyday... You know, viewer that watches television, not for the newest prestige drama, but just plugs in, to, you know, to watch whatever is on network or whatever newest. Like nowadays, it's like reality TV would be. Part yeah. Of it too. Well,
1: and, the, it, you know, it comes from film. And the idea is like someone who goes to the theater to eat popcorn and be have a pleasurable experience rather right. than to be a cinephile watching
0: like, intellectually some art film. Exactly. And so I think that what you're getting at, though, is that Marty Sherwood provides the Joe popcorns and the Jane popcorns and the non-binary popcorns of the 80s the opportunity to encounter different parts of the U.S. that they may not have encountered before, you know, because there are a lot of people Mm. who can't afford to travel or who don't have the leisure time to travel. And so through them, because Jessica Fletcher is so... I don't want to say innocuous because that's not really what I mean, but because she's just so ultimately relatable to everyone. Mm -hmm. Like She is one of the most inoffensive characters in television that they can live vicariously through her to sort of encounter, as you say, these different parts of the country that they may not have seen before.
1: You know, I never really thought of it that way, Teach. I thought of how it's pleasurable for us to watch of these different settings, but I'd never really thought of it as, like, it also enables the audience to go on journeys they might not actually be able to go on in their own lives. That's a really interesting point.
0: I mean, I would say that, you know, at least for, like, a family like mine who didn't really travel a lot, I mean, we traveled somewhat, but not, like, not to New Orleans, for example, or to mm-hmm. Seattle, you know, or something like that, I think that, you know, certainly that would be part of the pleasure and, you know, watching Jessica get to encounter all these different parts of the world.
1: I will make a little side note here that the last time TJ and I were in person together was in Seattle.
0: That is true. (laughs) Seems like a lifetime ago. And the before times. It was a
1: lifetime ago. It was pre-COVID.
0: Before times, as we call them.
1: I want to complain about some other stuff about this episode, if you'll indulge me. I will Um, always indulge you. Ben is poisoned. He's in the middle of playing a solo, and he falls down. And then everyone's shocked. And there's even a doctor in the audience which seems weirdly coincidental. I don't know, maybe there are a lot of doctors and there's always bound to be one in an audience, but he's the most useless doctor ever. So everybody sort of rushes Ben to check and see and the guy, the doctor says, oh, he's dead. (laughs) That's it. That's just it. We later learn he had a heart attack. Nobody tried any CPR. Now you have to understand, I'm on the heels of watching And Just Like That um, and reading all of the backlash about how a character in that dies of a heart attack and the person who's with him just sort of hugs him and is crying right and all the doctors of the world were like my god you have to do chest compressions so it was very frustrating to me that ben falls down and everyone's just like whoop guess he's dead that's it
0: i'm trying not to laugh too much into the microphone <laughs> <laughs> wait i mean didn't it bother you um i you know i'm a very like credulous viewer like i don't always like i just sort of take things in stride which you know doesn't say much for my work as a film scholar you know and as a media scholar like doesn't really say much about you know my level of engagement there's just kind of things that kind of float uh, over my consciousness that don't really like arouse my
1: he's not even dead yet he like literally just fell down
0: He's well they gotta, gotta keep they gotta keep bad. things moving. Like they got forty five minutes to get this thing wrapped up. Like they don't have time to uh, you know they not time to, to belabor his uh, his death agonies.
1: And they're like, Oh, Jessica Fletcher's in the audience. If we revive this guy, she's not gonna have anything to do this
0: week. Exactly.
1: <laughs> I think, you know, part of um it because he is Glenn Turman and he is very charismatic.
0: He is very charismatic.
1: We're kind of, we see him being a jerk to the people in his life, but he's he's charismatic and he's fun and he's playing his, his clarinet and he's showing he has his showmanship. Mm-hmm. And then it's only after his death that we learn so much about, like, really the horrors of the kind of person he was. Mm-hmm. Um, We don't actually see any of that. Right. It all gets told to us in exposition. And so for me, it's like, it's really hard to buy into how awful he was. Mm-hmm. And there, I think that's why I'm kind of ambivalent about this episode because yeah. i don't I don't really care
0: no, I think that's a fair criticism. I think that you're right that a lot of this episode relies too much on being told instead of showing us. yeah, and so that does tend to and you know, that's sort of the cardinal rule of any kind of work, whether it's television or film or writing, like the old mantra to show not tell. you know, it, telling is fine and acceptable, but it doesn't always make for very compelling viewing. And I think that's what you're picking up on.
1: Well, and to your point earlier, I think you know um, when you construct a complicated mystery puzzle, but you only have forty-two minutes to convey it to the audience. Um, by necessity, mm-hmm. some of it will have to be people
0: just telling other people stuff. But what? it isn't that, yeah, it isn't that interesting. Now, I will say that one thing I think this sh- the the episode does show is the sort of um, precarious life that artistic people lead. Mm. Like, because what, part of why everyone hates him is because by cutting loose his band they now have to like scrape together a living and that's always a fragile like enterprise to start with if you're just an independent musician just making a go of it like we're just trying to do the best you can yeah. with the, with the gigs and as a you know now that we live in the gig economy par excellence like everybody's part of the gig economy including myself you know that 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 part of the episode hit home and i was like "Geez, like it's really it's really tough to be an artist like you have to, yeah. I mean, it's one of those cases where you have to really love what you do because that's going to give you far more satisfaction than you will ever get financially.
1: That's a really good point about this episode because we see his bandmates trying to audition for another club. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and they're, they're really great. The music is sensational. They're really accomplished musicians. And the club manager's like, we just, we don't have any money to hire you guys. Like, it's just
0: not going to happen, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's New Orleans, like jazz bands are a dime a dozen. I mean that's I mean like I said now obviously at the time that wouldn't have been quite as relevant because we weren't quite into the gig economy but now that we're like everybody just works by you know whether it's
1: you could actually be an artist back in the '80s imagine that yes
0: you know whether it's right whether it's DoorDash or Uber or any of the other kind of you know or freelance writer like whatever you're doing like that's part of the reason I was like wow that is humbling and troubling i was
1: thinking about how the idea was that ben has um gotten this sweet gig in las vegas and then uh-huh. he's headed out there and that's why he's dumping people's because he's about to go make it big and that really reminded me of birds of a feather because the idea there was the comedian uh-huh. got a had an opportunity to go to vegas and yep and just this idea of vegas as the mecca for extreme talent in the 80s yep. um and and I think a through line that we keep seeing with artistic types in this series is that when you have the opportunity to make it big, that seems to be a moment where people turn ugly. Yep. And they start dumping people in their lives who've helped them get there or something. Some some sense of um, selfishness and lust and greed
0: really kicks in. hmm Yeah, I mean and you know as any of us who have encountered people who did make it big can attest like that is unfortunately true that sometimes oftentimes like when you finally get to the top whether it's artistically or any level of your career like you start to you it really brings out the ugliness in you because that's what privilege does usually of whatever kind Mm -hmm. is to you know you lose some measure of your moral compass stop like I don't know what like that's just you know I, I hate to say that it's but it's often very often true you know once you get to the top of the heap like you can real act like a real monster because you are shielded from the consequences although in Ben's case clearly he's not shielded <laughs>
1: And when you say it like that, then Jessica is actually our example foil yep. that she her art is writing and she has made it to the top. And we repeatedly see her using her power for good. Yeah. And helping other people, providing critiques, introducing people to people who might help their careers.
0: Yeah, I like that, actually. And I think that that's part of what makes Ben's own sort of like moral turpitude all that much more remarkable is that turpitude. I know. I'm sorry. I, I apologize. Like our, our listeners know that. Oh, no,
1: I love it. Every, I think everyone knows moral
0: turpitude. I think that's common enough. Sure. Um, but I, I think it's that, a funny word. Yes. But I think that part of what makes that so striking is that, as you rightly point out it's so sharply juxtaposed to Jessica's own stardom. Like she's the example yeah. of what it's like and to be- And herself. Yes, exactly. The, these are the kinds of people, as I said, like, was it last week, week before, that grace is a really key part of Lansbury's star persona, but it's also a, a key part of, of Jessica's- Jessica. of Her mm-hmm. persona, that she is willing to, op- and able to offer grace in a way that so many other people just do not, or will not for whatever reason- that they've decided to act like assholes.
1: So I have two other quick things to talk about. Um, We have just a minute or two left, but I just wanted to note that our police lieutenant in this episode is Bradford Dillman, who ultimately does eight episodes of Murder, She Wrote. So I just enjoy seeing him. I think he plays off of Angela Lansbury Mm -hmm. nicely. The other thing I was wondering was what you thought of Angela's relationship with Jonathan. So Jonathan is Mm. a white guy who has a local TV show. And that's why Angela has – Jessica has actually come to New Orleans is to be on his show, probably to promote a book. We're not really told why. Um, But they obviously have some sort of close friendship. And I was kind of wondering what you thought of that relationship, Tiege. I
0: thought it was cute. And it's another – because they have such a clear – What's the word I'm looking for? Bond with one another, like, and I think it's another incident where you know Jessica fits in so well with other people and has such a wide circle of friends, which I'm very envious of. Having been a shut-in, that's what I'm like, saying.
1: How does she even know this guy?
0: I know. I mean, like, I, I mean, but I look. He, and I, you know, when I said earlier about her living vicariously, I kind of live vicariously through Jessica because she has this far-flung circle of acquaintances that she just constantly. Can travel and meet and hang out with, and I'm like, oh, to have that life. And she know? shows
1: up two days early, and he's not like, lady, I'm busy. He's like, oh, great, come hang out with me. No big deal. I you know, know,
0: it's, like, it's like, oh, I love it.
1: Like, what is it? I maybe TJ and I are doing something wrong in life, but neither of us has that kind of relationship with people around I mean, the world. I s-
0: I think that part of that is like, at least for me, I always just feel uncomfortable just imposing myself on other people's hospitality. Like I'm just, I haven't ever. Maybe it's my Appalachian upbringing, you know, where I'm just like, you don't just invite yourself over. I don't know. Like I, I don't know what it is, but I, I but I just I, like I, when I said live vicariously. I think that that you know I'm living vicariously through Jessica with all of her many many friends that she can go visit whenever she wants to.
1: The adventures of JB Fletcher continue, but. For this week, uh, that was Murder to a Jazz Beat, and I'm Bridget Keyes.
0: And I'm T.J. West.
1: We'll catch you next time. Thanks. The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Common License. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook
0: and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.